Well, it's good to be with you this morning, and it's certainly a privilege to bring God's Word before you. Heroes Can't Save You, that's the name of the series, and we will be looking at Moses this morning. Uh, No doubt God's Word has plenty to say about Moses. Uh, Wrote the first five books of the Bible. Uh, In one of those, Exodus, he's chosen by God to lead Israel, God's chosen people, he would be uh, and would go down in history as a, a great leader, a leader of Israel. And if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, there's the Hall of Faith chapter, and he is mentioned for his great faith. In many ways, Moses represents uh, a type of Christ, which we'll talk about more in depth later, in the way that God used him and the way that he lived uh, his life. But heroes can't save you because Moses was not Christ. So as we get started Uh, If you're an unbeliever or if you're not sure even how to study the Bible, just right out of the gate, I'd like to encourage all of us with this and rest in this truth. We don't study the Bible for great men and women to jot down what they did and then do that for the rest of our lives. We study the Bible to point us to Christ. If you're not sure what Christianity is about, well, it's the story of the Bible and it goes a little something like this, just to get our day started. There's a God of the universe. It's what we believe. He's perfect in every way. And we have disrupted his perfect order, which the Bible calls sin. So we've all sinned against him. Therefore, we need a savior. So God sent his son to be better than Moses, better than Abraham, better than Joseph, and that he would die. His son would be better than all of them, die on the cross for our sins, and that us, by faith, would be counted righteous. So to start us tonight, uh, start us this morning, I just wanted to rest in that. We study the Bible to know and to be pointed to the person and work of Jesus Christ, not that of Moses or Abraham or Joseph. So with that said, let's grab our Bibles. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 20. And as we get there, as we're turning to Numbers chapter 20, let me just stress and, and make this point. This is no doubt, unmistakably, no comparison, Moses's biggest failure as a man, and in particular, as a man called by God to lead his people. If you know anything about Moses' life, we touched on it. He was a great leader, a great man of faith, but his life did not end as many would have expected it to. This is Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses has been brought up to the top of the mountain. This is the last chapter in the last book written by Moses. God brings Moses up to the top of the mountain, and it says this. The Lord said to Moses, this is the land which I swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. And I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab, overlooking the promised land which he had been bringing Israel for all this time to. So how could this be the end for Moses? How did we get to this point for Moses and Israel. Why could Moses not lead Israel into the promised land? So let's read the first 13 verses of Numbers chapter 20, and then I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna just dive right in and unpack it. So Numbers chapter 20, verses one through 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam, died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, 
They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of this Egypt to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, to, uh, for them and give them drink to the congregation and to their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly uh, together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Father, I pray this morning, speak through me. Let nothing be original to myself. Let all my, let all my preparations have been your words and your thoughts and your spirit inside of me. Allow me to just hide behind you, behind your gospel, and behind your cross Just allow us all to benefit something from this. Allow us to understand this text better as we leave and have it applied to us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, they say, we've no doubt heard this expression before, if you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it. So you can lick, lick, lick of the ice cream, and if you don't know whether that was number six or number seven, next time... You may make the fatal mistake of having another brain freeze. History buffs, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, in June of 1812, led the French military to invade Moscow. So it's June. They got to Moscow by September. They conquered Moscow, though most of Russia had already uh, left that city. So by September, they had conquered Moscow. On the way back, they hit some severe weather conditions, as the Russian winter would have it. And Napoleon took 600,000 soldiers with him, probably lost next to none in the small battle that they actually had to have, but only returned with some 10,000 soldiers. The conditions killed 590,000 some odd soldiers of the 600 he had taken. So if you don't study it, you're doomed to repeat it. And such was the case for the Nazi regime in 1941. They sought to invade Russia. Uh, They did not go in June. They went in towards the beginning of the winter, uh, ill-equipped and arrogant to what they had should have studied about a hundred years before, and their invasion was short-lived. But I started thinking, you know, there's another aspect to not studying history and not learning from history. The history you wish you could repeat. Case in point, uh, any golfers here? How about the entire staff of Waterford? Yeah, in this service, Waterford Golf Course. So if you're a golfer here this morning, you know that there have been times where you've stepped up to the tee and you've hit the ball and then suddenly you ask a question like this. Was that me? 
No way I just hit that. I can't hit 200 yards straight down the fairway. Well, my favorite, how did I just do that? You wish you could repeat that, but you didn't study it. You may turn around and ask what you did, but you'll never know what you did, and you will never be able to repeat such a glorious history. Any cookers? Anyone like to cook? Right? You change a recipe or you cook from scratch, and then suddenly everybody's going bananas. They're, they're freaking out over this meal that you've just made, and you don't even know what you did. And you kind of know, but you'll never quite get it if you didn't write it down. So wh- whether you uh, don't want to repeat history or do want to repeat history, if you don't study it, you'll be doomed in either way. And that's what we're going to see for both Israel and Moses in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. So just to recap in this passage, they come to Kadesh, there's no water, they complain to Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron rightly go before God to ask uh, what to do. God plans to provide for a quarreling and disobedient Israel, and Moses fails. Moses is disobedient. However, God still provides, and Moses and Aaron are forced to be punished for their sin. So I I began to think, as we're thinking about why Moses can't save us and the character of Moses, we need to establish what has happened up to this point. That's our first question. What has happened up to this point, up to Numbers chapter 20, verse 1, which says this, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So what has happened up to this point? Let's establish the context before we got here, and we'll we'll look at the context after in a moment. Context before we got here. Let's fly through uh, some chapters of Scripture. Exodus chapter 1, Israel is enslaved to the Egyptians. Uh, Egypt was scared of them. They're too numerous. They're they're too massive for us to uh, be able to go to war with, so let's enslave them. Exodus chapter 2, Moses is born to a Hebrew woman. Uh, She put him in a basket on the river so that he would not, I guess, be cast into that river. Uh, And then Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and takes him in. I don't know. That's ironic that Pharaoh's decree was to kill all Hebrew boys, and she finds one, and uh, he gets to live. Next half of Exodus chapter 2, Moses is a grown man, and while just living his life as not an enslaved Hebrew in Egypt, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave And he knows that that was his people. He is Hebrew, even though he was not enslaved. So he kills the Egyptian uh, slave master. Then he runs away to Midian and he finds a wife. Exodus chapter three, Moses is called by uh, Yahweh at the burning bush. The first instance of the phrase or the name, I am. He says, you will lead my people because I am who I am. Then Exodus chapters seven through 18. This is the Exodus right? The word is not just the name of the book. It is when Israel, God's people, were enslaved and they were brought out of slavery. They, the, the Exodus, right? 19 of 30, chapters 19 and 30 of uh, Exodus, God's law is given to Israel. He gives out the law to his people uh, so that they would have order and structure and a way of holiness. Now we fast forward to Numbers 13 because now they're, they're living their lives from about Exodus 30 to now. They've been moving all these years from Exodus 31 to Numbers 13. They've been moving towards the promised land. And in Numbers 13, Moses gets together spies from each of the nations of Israel to go and uh, invade the land or go and scope out the land and get an idea of it. The spies return and they give their report. But the people of Israel are faithless. 
They don't want to go and take the land that God has given them. They don't trust. They think that they would die. So this is Numbers 14, chapter 14 of the book of Numbers. It says this, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us up into this land, the promised land, to fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And verse four of Numbers 14, they said to one another, let us choose a leader, a new one, and go back to Egypt. So that sounds a little familiar. That's Numbers 14, one through four. Sounds a little like our passage today. And that passage is what sparked the famous 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, wandering in the desert before they could take the promised land. Nobody lost their iPhone. That's not why they wandered. They wandered because they were directly disobedient to Yahweh, their God, and, his, and the leader that he had chosen, which was Moses. For their rebellion against Moses, who was chosen by God, and against God, who chose Moses, they say, you will, God says, you will wander for 40 years until this generation that has been rebellious and faithless dies. And that 40 years of wandering is precisely where we pick up in Numbers chapter 20. So in verse 1, 40 years of wandering has happened, and now they're on the edge of the promised land. They are ready to take it. And this is a terribly chilling start to what is about to be conquest. It says this, Miriam died there and was buried. Miriam gets merely one sentence or one half of a verse of Scripture for her death and her memorialization, but we know that this sentence and this half of verse one means much more to Moses and to Israel than one sentence. This was Moses' sister. Miriam is the first woman ever given the title prophet or prophetess, that's uh, at the Red Sea. She's the sister of Moses and Aaron, so she's been through all of this with them. And uh, many Bible scholars identify her as, though we cannot, I guess, totally confirm it, Many of them believe and identify her as the unnamed sister, the unnamed woman who found Moses as a baby in the river. So this is a huge moment for Moses and Israel, no doubt. And verse 1 sets up what is one of the saddest chapters of all of the scriptures. So let's set up, just for our time briefly this morning, the context after verse 13, our final verse this morning. Uh, Just a little bit of the context after that. Miriam dies in our passage, verse one. Moses rebels. God punishes Moses and and Aaron. And then after that, you have a a terribly sad encounter with Edom, kind of the the brother nation to Israel, where they will not let Israel pass through their land. It's a sad moment for Israel. And then you have a terribly sad conclusion to this chapter where Aaron dies, Moses' brother. So inside this chapter, you have Moses' disobedience to God bookended by the deaths of his brother and sister. Let's continue. Let's go to verses 6 through 12. I'll I'll read those again, and we'll see uh, now, now that we know where we've been and where we're going, let's sit in this passage, and I'll read uh, 6 through, I'll actually read um, just 6 through uh, 9 or 6 through 10. I'll stop. And we will establish our second question or or begin to answer our second question, which is this. What do they want? What do they want? What is the situation? So turn with me again to Numbers chapter 20. 
I will be reading, uh, starting in verse 2, we'll actually read 2 through 6, or 2 through 9. Allow me. Now, there was no water for the congregation, so they assembled themselves against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought this assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he was commanded. We'll stop there, verse 9. Moses is having one of those days, okay? Size up your worst day with Moses here. His sister died, and immediately the people that he has been chosen to lead uh, rebel against him. They bring a complaint towards him for a physical need. This is some serious deja vu, right, where you think you've done something or think you've seen something before. This is the third time now that Israel, uh, with a hungry belly or a thirsty mouth, has come now to Moses for a physical need that they are complaining about. So, uh, 2A, Israel repeats its history in a very terrible way. Israel's repeating its history because deja vu in a particularly terrible way is Exodus chapter 17. There's another instance where water is brought from a rock, and it's Exodus chapter 17, the same situation. They have no water. They've come to a place, and Moses in that instance strikes the rock as God commanded him to, and water comes pouring out. Manna from heaven, most of us know that story. Uh, Israel's hungry, and they, again, wish they had gone back to where they had just came from, and God provides their physical need that time by way of hunger. The scary truth is, this is the third time now, and in particular for Numbers 20, Moses is not, or uh, the people of Israel are not angry with Moses or Aaron, though they voice their complaints to Moses and Aaron. For 40 years, Moses and Aaron have been following the lead of God, by way of pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, literally following the lead of God. Not a single place for 40 years, even Kadesh where there's no water, not a place for 40 years was determined by Moses or Aaron. It was all by way and lead of God. For 40 years, every physical need that Israel had was given to them by the literal hand of God. So Israel's not angry with Moses. They're angry at the heart of it all, with God. And instead of praying or lamenting or just asking for wisdom, instead of voicing anything to God, they've assembled themselves against the man appointed by God to lead them. Verse three and four, they, they complain and they use some very terrible ways to say it. They say, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. What a terrible, terrible lack of faith to want to die by the hand and punishment of God then live the life that he has put forward before you. Why, why do I have to do this life? Why has God made this so hard for me? It's terrible. It's such a lack of faith. We must always be reminded, just as Israel need to be reminded, that 
God's in control in all things. We'll work together for our good. Verse number five is very striking. It says this, Israel, talking to Moses, why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Let's put it in some Southern Baptist language. There's no mashed potatoes. There's no fried chicken. Anyone like ribs? I like ribs. There's none of these things. There's no sweet tea. Why have you brought us to this evil place, Moses? What was the social status? Someone yell it out. What was the social status of Israel in Egypt? Slaves. They were slaves. And the text actually says that they were treated harshly because they were slaves, not with easy work. So they have been led by Moses, who is being led by God, and they don't see water immediately, a physical need that God's been providing for 40 years, and they should know by now God has the power to provide, and they assemble themselves against their leader who God put in place to lead them. As I was reading this, I felt terribly convicted because I am a church member, though I serve in a relative form of Uh, a relatively small form of staff here, 10 to 15 hours a week. I'm still a church member. I have the pleasure of serving on both roles, staff member and church member. And I just know as a member of the church, this hit me so hard because I was thinking, who complains against other people? Uh, Coaches uh, or players and coaches. I mean, I've coached a few basketball teams in my time. Yeah, the seventh grade boys complained a lot to me. Uh, That's okay. That's what players do. They want answers. People complain against everybody. You complain against your politicians, but it just convicted me so hard to know that this is the life, uh, in many ways, of the church member. There's a man appointed by God to lead you, or men appointed by God to lead us as church members, and we assemble ourselves in front of them because we don't like every single move, as small as, in Israel's case, a physical need. The church member should be terribly convicted listening to this as I was. And I I can say we, and I can say we should be convicted because I do this all the time. Something very small is done by someone in leadership. Let's call it Joel or Scott or Scott in the children's ministry. Something's done relatively small, a song selection or a sermon series. And I just want to assemble myself uh, or, or a couple of people along with me and to Scott or to Joel and just tell them all the terrible things that they're doing. Not having myself realized, not having myself prayed or lamented to God for wisdom. Man, they've been appointed by God. They've been affirmed by God to lead us. Why are we doing it this way? Why can't I decide what we should do, right? Oh, can we vote on this real quick? All these small things that we assemble ourselves like Israel to the men appointed by God to lead us. And it saddens me and it convicts me most because we do this. Church members, we do this. We uh, we resent the leadership and the the moves that they make to a point that on the Lord's Day we gather together to sing songs of praise, hear God's word read over and preached over us, and we're miserable on the Lord's Day, and we don't realize it. I can't tell you how many times I've been miserable in these very pews because I didn't pray, I did not lament. Israel didn't pray or lament. They went straight to the people appointed by God to lead them because they didn't trust in God. They didn't trust in his power to lead and his power uh, or Moses' following of that leadership. They talk and they act like someone who deserves and expects something that they're not being given. Why are we here? We don't deserve this. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this place? They don't act like the assembly of the Lord. The quote by a pastor when I was studying for this passage said this, 
because they're looking back to where they've come, you know, where they were slaves. He said this, unbelief, a lack of trust, unbelief makes the past look brighter and the future look bleaker. We're no strangers to this. We're no strangers to this. And this is deja vu because God, as we know, is still going to plan to provide. However, he plans to provide in a new way. It's very unique. Plans to provide in a new way. Look at verse six. So Moses and Aaron, they they leave the assembly of the Lord, the congregation, and they go to where God is or where God would meet them, the tent of meeting, and they just fall on their faces. So many believe that by their posture and by the nature of why they were going to the tent of meeting, because they're going because Israel is utterly faithless. So many believe by the way that they fall on their face and why they're coming to meet God here that they were fully prepared for God's judgment. Hellfire and brimstone to rain down on Israel. And what they're met with, what we can be encouraged with, is they're not met with judgment. They're not met with hellfire. They're met with these sweet words. Verse eight, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, and tell the rock to yield water so that you shall bring water out of the rock for the congregation to drink, even their cattle. The staff, this was a tool used to perform many signs and and, uh, many signs during the Exodus and done many things. It was given directly by Yahweh to to, uh, Moses for this very purpose. And in Exodus chapter 17, he actually struck the rock to provide water in that instance. Though this is a new day. And God tells Moses and Aaron, without judgment, without uh, too much anger towards Israel, he tells them to go speak to the rock. That very words would have the power to bring water for them and for their cattle. And at the end of verse eight, Moses does just that. He takes the staff uh, and has no indication that he plans to use it yet. And though Moses is having one of those days, his sister's dead and now the people are quarreling with him, he's keeping himself together so far. Good for Moses. But we, even this morning, have already read this full story. We know how south it is soon to go for Moses. Which leads us to our final question. What is the response? So we've got where we've been up to this point, what they want. Now, what is the response? Let's look together at the final few verses, 10 through 13 of Numbers chapter 20. Verse 10. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So verse 10, again, some more deja vu. It begins, verse 10 does, very familiar. Moses assembling the congregation before something that he's about to either strike or speak to. Their need is about to be met. But with staff in hand, Moses and Aaron, and Aaron is held accountable, as you could tell, they get the people and instead of speaking to the rock, or uh, they go to speak to the rock and they go to bring water out of it, but then it goes terribly wrong. So, 
We've had history repeated. We know that if you don't study it, you will repeat your history as Israel did. And now, one of those instances of wishing to repeat history, Moses here wishes, desperately I'm sure, that he repeated his history. Moses certainly wishes he repeated his history. Wish he had studied it. Wish he had knew and could repeat it. So Moses' first action when he assembles the, uh, the, when he gets the assembly together, he's got Lord's pe- the Lord's people together, his very first action is to speak to them. Now God had said nothing, uh, unless you've got another Bible that has more verses that I would challenge. Uh, God has said nothing about talk to the people. He said, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock. And Psalm 106 adds a bit of detail. Psalm 106 says that Moses didn't just speak to them, but he spoke to them rashly with rash and harsh words. A bit of self-reliance thrown in there too. Shall I bring or shall we bring you water from this rock? Moses has wandered for 40 years. We've established this much. Uh, Actually, twice in the book of Numbers, someone has tried to either rebel against Moses or Aaron. Uh, That happened two times. So this is, you know, the third time just in this book alone that people have come to Moses and Aaron uh, wanting for something else and perhaps wanting for another leader. Moses, it's evident, was not interested in mercy. He comes to meet God, falls on his face, expects judgment and hellfire to come down on Israel. Maybe another generation needs to die off. That's what he's expecting. And he's met with mercy. And evidently, that's not good enough for Moses. Actually, earlier uh, in the book of Numbers, when people try to rebel against Moses and Aaron, God uses that same word, rebels. God, towards Israel, uses the same word that Moses here calls them. Moses grabs the staff and says, well, God, if you're not going to enact justice or judgment, perhaps I might. God, if you're not gonna bring your wrath down on these faithless people who have turned against me for the last time, maybe I'll just do it. Maybe I'll just take it in my own hands. Mercy was not good enough for Moses. But Moses' disobedience was not just speaking harshly towards the people, as we saw. Moses' disobedience ends in or gets to the point where he strikes the rock rather than speaking to it. Moses and it becomes, in a sense, his own Messiah, his own God. He needs not God. He needs not anyone else. He can enact the wrath of God. He calls them rebels, and then he says, I'll just do it myself, and they can praise me. In Exodus chapter 17, he was told to strike the rock. We've established that a couple of times. And now, maybe wishing, especially after he gets his, uh, his punishment here in a few moments, now he's, maybe he's wishing, man, I wish I had studied that. I wish I had repeated my own history. And God's great mercy, though, Moses' disobedience isn't over. It's not the end for the provisions for Israel. Water still flows from the rock, and the people and their livestock are still nourished. Moses, though, in verse 12, still do his comeuppance. God says to both Moses and Aaron, because Aaron was there and present and was given the command, it wasn't just Moses, He tells them both, you have sinned. And he says in particular, if you look at verse 12, that they've sinned in two different ways. They lost faith, they broke faith, and second, they assaulted God's holiness. So they didn't trust in him. Clearly they thought, you know, well, I guess words aren't gonna do it. I've seen this story before. I need to strike the rock. God was mistaken. Uh, 
let me now strike the rock. I don't trust God. I don't trust his words, which brought the very creation into being. They take matters into their own hands. And God also says that their disobedience, them striking the rock, attacked, assaulted, and just made mockery of God's holiness. The rock was the symbol of God present with them. It was God's provision for them, and they decided to be very disrespectful towards it. They assaulted his holiness, God says. A full circle for Moses and Aaron. They've been faithful for so long. In, this, in just this book, in just the last few chapters of Numbers, they've wandered for 40 years being faithful, having rebellion strike up and rebellion strike up. And for years before that, they had passed through Red Seas and all of these plagues, and they had been so faithful, and now we've come full circle to utter faithlessness. So there had to be punishment for their sin as there's, pun- as there's punishment for our sin. Their punishment They wouldn't be able to enter the promised land. Aaron would die in this very chapter. Moses, as we established at the very beginning, would die in Deuteronomy 34. That was their punishment. They couldn't lead Israel into the land. And then verse 3 calls the waters Meribah. These are the waters of Meribah. means quarreling. These are the waters of quarreling where they quarreled with the Lord. But then he says something very interesting at the very end of verse 13. Let's look look at it if you have your Bibles. The very end of verse 13 says that through them, the quarreling, the Meribah, through them, he, God, showed himself holy. Sin, as in the case of Meribah, shows the holiness of God. By that I mean, it shows just how perfect and magnificent and glorious that God is. That he is perfect, that he has never sinned, that he will never sin. Our sin is shows his holiness. It's not something to be proud of, but it shows just how perfect a God we have as our creator and even as our savior. Psalm 95.8 talks about the waters of Meribah. There's two Psalms here that talk about the waters of Meribah in two different ways. Psalm 95 verse eight says, today, if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts as is Meribah. So the psalmist shows just how terrible the sin was. Don't harden your hearts to the very voice of God, as they did at Meribah. But then, 19 psalms later, Psalm 114, verse 8, the psalmist says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water and the flint into a spring of water. Don't do that. Don't harden your hearts as they did at Meribah, but look at just how perfect and glorious God is to turn the rock into water for us, that his mercy and his power is so great. Two psalmists, two different ways of looking at Meribah. So our sin brings glory and magnification to God. That's what we can get from that very end of verse 13. He alone, he being God, is holy. The waters of Meribah, where we most clearly see the gospel in this passage. The love of God is so magnificent, as we can get from Israel in this passage and the books before it, the chapters of Numbers and the books before Numbers, that the love and the glory of God is so magnificent that we can't out God. There is no way to out God. There's no way to sin more times than he can forgive, as is the case for Israel. A glorious truth for us as believers to rest in, 
that if we have Christ as our Savior, we cannot out his love for us. It's too big, too magnificent. That we have all sinned, we all deserve wrath, but if you, and if you don't put your faith and trust and repentance in Lord Jesus, you will receive that wrath as an eternity in hell. But for those of us here who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we know that our eternity is not in hell, but it's in paradise. The forgiveness of sins comes by Jesus' death, resurrection, and our faith, and our turning from sin and trust in him as our savior. So I plead with you this morning, if you've never made that decision before, if you're new here, if you don't know what the gospel is about, but you know that you've sinned against God and you need to repent and be forgiven, talk to someone here who has had that transformation. There are plenty of us here this morning that have lived that life of being in sin, being a stranger, and God seeking us out. Let's talk to somebody. It's not just myself, Scott, Eric, Joel, Scott. It's not just us that know the gospel and have had that change. It's many of us here this morning. Our sin shows the holiness of God and it will always and should always point us back to the cross where our sins put Jesus on the cross. And in this passage, we see the love of God and the gospel and the the cross of Christ so clearly in the waters of Meribah. See, sometimes in the Old Testament, we talked about Moses as as a type of Christ. Sometimes in the Old Testament, there's this thing called typology where someone or something represents Christ before he would come. And in this passage, we have a type of Christ, uh, but it's not Israel. No, Israel doesn't represent Christ at all, do they? They haven't for all of these books of the Bible. It's not Moses and Aaron, though they have before, Moses has. It's certainly not Moses and Aaron in this passage. So where do we see Jesus? Where's the gospel? Where's the typology? What in this passage represents Jesus? And that's where we'll see our final sub-point and where we most clearly see the gospel is that the rock is a type of Christ. The rock is the type of Christ. If that's weird for you, if the imagery is not enough of something being struck and life pouring out from it, as was the rock, then let us listen to the Apostle Paul's very words on this rock. See, uh, John MacArthur, a relatively famous uh, Bible scholar and pastor, says that the Bible is its own best interpreter and the Bible is its own best commentator, its own best person, its own best... uh, scholar to talk about itself. So let's look at what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It should pop up on the screen. Paul says, for I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate of the same spiritual food and all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Let us never forget that Christ was, on this, was put on the cross, was struck, was punished for our sins, that life eternal would abound from it, that forgiveness would pour out like water for us. God's grace is seen in the rock in this passage. Christ is seen in the rock in this passage. Christ, who is our rock. So why can we not be saved by Moses? Well, I hope if we've learned one thing so far, it's that Moses, like the rest of us, needs a mediator, needs the cross of Christ just like us. So our last question, what can we learn from Moses? A little bit of application for us as we close. Perhaps we need to gather something from his terrible lack of faith. 
Moses exuded, uh, Moses and Aaron, but Moses just exuded in this passage terrible lack of faith. He didn't trust that the words of God would suffice to bring water from the rock. He thought he would have to do it himself. Perhaps we can learn from that. That while we will always lack our faith and we'll always find times wandering and wandering literally from God, we should always be pointed back to Christ. Let us rest in his lack of faith knowing that we have the Holy Spirit. We always need to be turning back to Christ and relying on him because we are utterly faithless. Perhaps you're like myself. You can be a bit of a hothead. Moses was too. So let's, perhaps we can learn from Moses' anger. I mean, Moses is clearly angry at the uh, circumstances that have come before him. Uh, his sister has just died. They've, uh, they've rebelled against him for what he thinks is going to be just the last time because I'm gonna get him. Somebody's gotta enact the wrath of God and Moses decides to take that on himself to enact that wrath of God he thinks needs to be enacted. Moses terribly angry, terribly hot-headed. We need to rest in Christ. Anger and impatience play together because Moses is so angry that he's too impatient for God to do God's work. Let us rest. We can just rest in Christ and pray and rely fully on him when we feel angry or when someone else's impatience or our impatience want us to sin or want to lead us into sin and disobey God. And the one point I think that we can most notably gather from Moses is his direct disobedience to the words of the Lord. I mean, he had a literal word of the Lord in the tent of meeting come to him and tell him what to do, and Moses directly disobeyed it. We have the words of the Lord. We have the commands. We have all that is required for life and godliness. Why directly disobey it? And I don't mean that we won't because we're all sinners who all need the cross of Christ just the same and all need the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. So when we are directly disobedient or leaning towards disobedience, we must pray. We must pray, we must pray again, and we must know that we can never out God. So always come back to the word which has all that is required for life and godliness. I pray that we rely on God's word, not just on Sundays for a preacher to preach it over us, not just for Sunday school class, but every day that we would have a relationship with the word, the chapters of scripture, the very verses, that we would have a relationship and we'd know and we'd grow in God's word, which is all that's required. Pray with me as we close. Father, thank you for this chapter of scripture. Thank you that we can learn from a great man's terrible disobedience. Father, I pray that we'd walk out of here charged to not be like Moses, which is often so much of what we gather from our study in the scriptures, to be like this person or be like that person. But the only person we could and should strive to be like is Christ, our Savior. Father, empower us with your Holy Spirit as we walk out of here. Let us as believers rest in your salvation as we are to do on a Lord's day. Let us just rest in the the saving work that you performed on the cross. Let us be charged to go and share that. And Father, move in your spirit, anyone who is in here, or even as I pray for the next service, and anyone who has not heard and received the grace of Christ, the the forgiveness of sins, your spirit would move in them and begin that work, that the word of the Lord as they come to hear it preached, and as we have heard it preached, would convict them of sin and point them to you. Father, allow us to sing this last song with just rejoicing over your gospel and your forgiveness of sins. And it's in your name I pray, amen.